Okay, Johnny, uh, awesome, awesome conversation today. I was amped about this one. Um, been a big fan of hers for a while. We chatted with Dr. Anna Lemke of Stanford University. She's currently a professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. She's a program director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, um, she's an expert on a variety of topics, but we really dug into um, one she's kind of become most famous for recently, which is the dopamine reward system. And her latest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in an Age of Indulgence, really dives into that and hits on some key themes we've talked about with other guests. So amazing conversation. What were some of the highlights for you, John? Well, I mean, I loved the somewhat pessimistic analogy she gave of the flourishing life and the predicament we find ourselves in now. She compared our lives to the plight of Sisyphus, condemned to, you know, eternity in Hades, where you push a boulder up a, a hill and watch it roll down again. I know to repeat that for eternity. And she elaborated on what she meant by that in terms of our relationship with dopamine addiction and what to her the kind of the flourishing life is. It's a life of abstinence and asceticism um, in terms of allowing ourselves to feel physical pain, negative emotions, do things that are cognitively difficult, and that's a good way to live. How about you? Yeah, I think that's the the key point and part of why we wanted to have her on. It, it drives well with what we heard from some other guests, but on a, a more mechanistic level, that ultimately one of the pathways to sort of greater well-being, greater life satisfaction, the good life is through unpleasantness, through pain of some type, right? And that there's, there's an important paradox that people need to be aware of and that she shares a couple times in the episode. So mm -hmm. I think it'll be really useful. It's incredibly pertinent, um, relevant to, to, to modern life. Um, so enjoy our wonderful conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. Hey, Anna. Hi, Anna, Hi. how you doing? Good. Good, such a pleasure to meet you. Honor to meet you, thank you for joining us today, Anna. This is a real treat for us. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. We're sure you're very, very busy. So it's, it's incredibly kind of you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Great, great. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So uh, congratulations on the immense success of Dopamine Nation, one of the many projects I think that you've had your hands and expertise in. Um, I've read it, I think, twice at this point. I recommend it constantly. Uh, I recently just had a client who's a, a screenwriter in LA, read it, struggles with distraction, especially with the phone. Um, and not only did he tell me how much he loved it, but he just talked about how uniquely human it is, the stories that you tell, not only about your patients, but the stories you tell about yourself as well. Yeah. So you just, it's this really beautifully woven, I think, balance between really hard, um, thoughtful science, right? But just sort of the human experience as well. So so congrats um, on that. Thank you. Um, I want to start there. I, I once interviewed Lydia Denworth, who's written a really great book on kind of the biology of friendship. Um, and when I was chatting with her, she she just talked about, you know, committing to writing a book is a pretty serious, significant commitment, right? It can oftentimes take years Right now, you're an expert in a lot of what you've written about in Dopamine Nation, but ultimately, you're an expert, I think, in a lot of things. You probably could have written a lot of different books. Why'd you choose this one? I think this is the most pressing problem of our time. I am very worried for younger people growing up in this world. Um, I feel like I've had a front seat as a psychiatrist and especially as a psychiatrist who treats addiction on the growing problem of addiction in the modern world, not just for people who are sort of innately vulnerable to that problem, but really for all of us because of the ways in which the modern world has drugified almost all human experience. So I wrote it, you know, for my kids, for my kids' friends, for the world to come, um, really wanting to be thoughtful about how to navigate, you know, an environment that is just begging all of us to get addicted um, in every waking moment and really hunting us down um, for that purpose. And, and I've learned so much from my patients. As you know, I hold up my patients in recovery from severe addictions as modern day prophets for the rest of us. And so I've learned a lot from them. 
have incorporated it in my own life to good effect and wanted to share that with others. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say, just curious as a follow-up, would you say that most people, I don't know if there's any clear data on this, but do most people on some level struggle with, I don't know, maybe not the technical definition of addiction, right? The clinical definition, but maybe addictive behaviors. And this, you probably kind of slide on a spectrum here, but you think this is something that most people wrestle with on some level? Yes, I do now. So I used to think that I personally was immune to the problem of addiction because growing up, alcohol and drugs literally had no effect on me. Even caffeine doesn't wake me up. So I thought, gee, I guess, you know, that gene skipped me. And then midlife, you know, as I write about in the book, I became quite seriously addicted to romance novels, which of course people laugh, you know, it is sort of funny. Twilight was my gateway drug. My Kindle was my hypodermic syringe. But truthfully, it got to a point where it was interfering with my, yeah. my life and my relationships and my happiness. Um, and that was really a eureka moment for me in the sense that I realized, oh, it's not that I was immune to addiction. It's that I hadn't yet discovered my drug of choice. And had I lived 100 years ago, I never would have discovered my drug of choice. Mm. But the world we live in now has such a quantity and variety of drugs, including drugs that didn't exist before, that now we're really all vulnerable to this problem. Will you just explain a little more when you say drugs? I think we all know what you're talking about, but why don't you just kind of, I think you're using it a a little more generally than many people might, which I think is important and useful in this context, but explain by what might be included when you say drugs. Yeah. So I mean, anything that we ingest or any behavior that we use that affects our dopamine reward pathways in this way that makes us vulnerable to compulsive overconsumption, which can ultimately lead to the problem of addiction. How do we define addiction? Addiction, you know, is defined in a number of different ways, but the sort of fundamental definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. And one of the main messages in the book is that there is some serious physiology or brain science uh, behind this phenomenon. I mean, there are many reasons why people might be vulnerable to addiction, but at the end of the day, we're all vulnerable in the sense that we all have the same kind of motivational reward circuitry that makes us instinctively approach pleasure and avoid pain. And once we find our drug of choice and that reward circuitry gets hijacked, we're in the physiology of addiction that is indifferent to what might have made us reach for that drug in the first place. So yeah, the phrase, I guess the phrase drug of choice is useful here as the extension of the concept of drug, right? It's, and it's not yeah. And you said something you ingest, but also behavior. So it can literally be anything a human being does that results in these compulsive obsessive behaviors that stimulate, um, well, stimulate dopamine, that give dopamine rewards Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And to give examples, you know, it could be cannabis and alcohol and cocaine and opioids. And it can also be video games and pornography and compulsive masturbation and shopping and sugar and social media um, and romance novels. So the the list goes on and on. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So as you know, this is a podcast about human flourishing. And I mean, there's a, a kind of a there's been a growing movement for some time that, you know, well, this is nothing new that the aim of life is happiness and what pathways that that's, that's nothing new that goes back, you know, centuries. And we've interviewed some for this podcast, you know, that, that have emphasized the importance of, you know, taking into account things like negative emotions in our life. Your work kind of sheds light on a kind of maybe a slightly different take on one of the problems with happiness as, you know, a way of defining a good life, because one way of defining that might be just to, to receive lots and lots of dopamine rewards because you might feel, you know, really happy about that. So how do you define happiness and how do you define human flourishing, more importantly, in relation to your research on this work? Oh, wow. You just, you got right to the heart of it. <laughs> yeah, like, we're getting just, out of here. <laughs> <laughs> We're going for it. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's impressive. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I have, I have, searched lifelong to try to figure out the answer to that question. And I don't claim to have discovered it, but what 
I think I can say with confidence about the times that we live in now is that our conception of what makes for happiness or the good life has been adulterated by our consumeristic seeking of pleasure. And pleasure is certainly not happiness. In fact, what we've learned from the neuroscience of addiction that has really blossomed in the last 50 to 100 years is that the relentless pursuit of pleasure for its own sake actually leads to the inability to experience pleasure. And this is the great paradox and the great irony, Um, but, but something that is very, very pressing for our times because of the incredible access we have to pleasure for its own sake. That is to say, um, you know, the ways in which, again, various behaviors that we would, that we have for thousands of years associated with human flourishing, like making intimate human connections, has now become adulterated mm-hmm. by the technology and our having cracked the code on motivational reward systems such that now what can appear on the face of it as about human connection can really be just a drug. And of course, you know, social media comes to mind here, and this is not to vilify all forms of social media, but the the point is just that, um, you know, we have to be much clearer about really what is happiness and the good life and what is pleasure and how those two things can really be at odds with one another. Well, you just hit the nail on the head, almost the exact quote about the paradox we were going to read off to you. So we're going to, we're going to come back to that. Um, I didn't necessarily hear an answer there. So I'm curious, you said you've got a, you've got a lifelong search. Just, you know, what, how do you feel like if you think about it on a, I don't know, do you think about it on a biological level, a physiological level? Um, do you think about it on a psychological level? Maybe all of those. When you talk mm. about the good life, generally what seems to be in place in, in your experience? Like, can people be suffering from addiction and be flourishing? Can they be suffering from addiction and be happy, right? What are, what are some of the, I don't know, the prerequisites in your opinion? Yeah, right. Um, so, wow, that's a, that's a great question. I, okay, so to sort of try to, you're right. I didn't really quite answer the question. <laughs> and let me see if I can get, get back to it um, a little bit. Um, so I, I guess I would say that I've been thinking a lot about Sisyphus lately, and I don't know exactly why this particular uh, metaphor has come to mind, but of course, you know, I'm not, I'm no Greek scholar. Will you Um, share the metaphor? Because our audience might not know it, but I I know where you're going with this. Hopefully, hopefully I'll get it right. But, you know, Sisyphus, and I remember learning about Sisyphus as a young person and just thinking to myself, wow, that guy really got life wrong. (laughs) And, um, you know, and what Sisyphus had to do every day was he had to roll this huge boulder up a hill only to have that boulder fall back down again. Um, And then every day he would have to start over again. And I remember learning about that as a young, you know, sort of, sort of the, the starting of my life and thinking, oh God, that, you know, poor schmuck. Like he, he really doesn't, he he got like the worst kind of life, right? Where his efforts led to nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, and maybe it's because I'm middle-aged. And so maybe this is just something that middle age brings. But now I think, oh no, we are all Sisyphus. Like that, that's that is that is all of our lives. We're pushing a boulder up against gravity, and then we have to deal with it rolling down again. Mm. And that's all of us. But here's the thing. If we can be Sisyphus and still find meaning and purpose in rolling that boulder up every day, then we've really figured it out. And the thought that occurred to me as you were laying this out, I don't know if you meant it this way or not. You can tell me, but it occurred to me that every time you roll that boulder up, let's say you get it to the top of the hill, it seems to me that there's your quote unquote extension of the metaphor, the quote unquote dopamine reward. The ball rolls back down, AKA neuroadaptation, and you start over again. Right. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so I hear a couple of things. Yes. I hear like some synergy with some of the messages from the book. 
And maybe that's our entry point to come back to the paradox that you mentioned, the pleasure pain balance, right? Adaptation, baseline levels, all those things. I want to hit all those things. Right. But I also just on a real simple level heard what I what I hear a lot, which is it's a it's often about the journey, not the destination. Because you're going to adapt to the destination. You might get satisfaction from the destination, but it ain't going to last. So you better enjoy the ride. That was that was kind of my immediate takeaway. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. That, I think that's right. That's what that's what I'm thinking. But I think I would take it even a little bit further and and say the apparent futility of our lives is not futile if we deeply, if we're deeply present, and also if we trust that there is some greater meaning here and that we're participating in something much larger than ourselves. And that that's really, that's a kind of a trust really, because yeah. there's ultimately no proof of that. Yeah. Well, we look, was it last week, John, two weeks ago, we chatted with Emily Espahani Smith, um, author of the power of meaning. So we dug, we dug into that. Actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I really want to, dig deep on this uh yeah, john's a philosopher so you, you, you just you just created an intellectual itch for yeah, yeah. I, can, yeah. I have to be careful not to just spend the rest of the, this interview chatting about this but, but we really should because this is absolutely fascinating yeah um on a number of levels so um i mean on the first level it seems that if i understand this kind of analogy correctly um with sisyphus uh is that we've got ourselves into this position rather than we are just in this position, you know, and we can't get out of it, which is yeah. one interesting take on this, right? So, you know, for example, I mean, one way in which your thought experiment here resonates philosophically is with, you know, the work of Albert Camus, who has his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, where, where you know, it's a, right, it's a piece of existentialist literature on the absurdity of life and how we can try and find meaning in a life, which, you know, he thinks is analogous to Sisyphus's plight in Hades. Um, but so, but in your analogy, it seems that human beings have got themselves into this analogous situation in life. And it's quite a pessimistic view of our predicament now. <laughs> where life is like this just repeated struggle. I was trying to see how exactly it's analogous to our addiction to dopamine. It struck me that for this to, I, I thought one way you might go with this is that we're pushing the boulder up the hill and rolling it down. But every time we need a bigger fix you know yeah. bigger hit from dopamine yeah. so it's like it's like i don't know as our muscles get stronger as we keep pushing the boulder we need a bigger boulder to push mm -hmm. right we need to right. push it mm -hmm. a bit faster and run mm -hmm. after it quicker because you know we're not getting enough out of this quite meaningless behavior which might be analogous to scrolling or or um some other addictive behavior that perhaps we're 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 unbeknownst to us bored of doing so i guess yeah there's so many questions i want to ask you so <laughs> i guess one thing is um <laughs> should we should we not be trying to get ourselves out of this Sisyphus style predicament? And how might we do that? And that's going to get to the broader question of how we battle our dopamine addiction, a number of questions Nick and I would like to ask you. Um, but is it the case that you think that we weren't in this Sisyphus style predicament in life and that's what our dopamine addiction has brought us to? Or are you seeing this more as a wider analogy with human flourishing in general that dopamine addiction is kind of just exacerbated? Yeah. Oh, gosh, good questions. I mean, I would say that the way that I was really conceptualizing this analogy, which is related to, uh, you know, my thoughts that I write about in Dopamine Nation, is more along the lines of that we have created a world now in which we really don't need to do anything in order to survive. I mean, of course, that's not true for many people. Sure. That's not true for people living in certain countries. Obviously, people living in, you know, war-torn Ukraine are facing a very different type of scenario. But for modern people, you know, living in the modern world, it is very difficult now to find a sense of true meaning and purpose because, you know, our basic survival needs are, are all met. And so I think I was thinking of the metaphor, not so negatively, but just sort of like, given that, like given that reality, that we, we, we do in fact need to find meaning and purpose yeah. somehow. Um, Survival used to, be, used to be the boulder. 
Well, it just, you didn't even have time to think about it. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Right. You just had to push. And, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, so, you know, whether we're drawing that meaning out of ourselves or looking to something higher than ourselves or a greater power to draw that meaning, um, you know, uh, the, the point is that even with, I mean, we have these lives now that are very circumscribed, right? And, you know, many, if not most of us have these little routines that like really, like we don't have to do them, right? Mm -hmm. But we do them and they're, they're like, we're devoted to them and they're like, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so there's a way in which we can be devoted to this like a cycle that I think is potentially healthy and another way in which we can be devoted to our little project, whatever it may be, which is potentially very destructive. Let's, let's go with that, that notion of cycle here for a second. Thank you for those answers. That was, that was helpful and fun to kind of chew on. And I don't know that you'd necessarily describe it as a cycle, but in the book, you really talk about this, this teeter totter effect. Right. Um, the, the idea that what goes up must come down. Will you just start with sort of the basic fundamentals of what you describe as the pleasure pain balance? We'll get to anhedonia. We'll get to the paradox. Will you just kind of set this up me- mechanistically for our listeners? Sure. So to me, one of the most important findings in neuroscience in the past 50 to 100 years is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. So those are co located. And they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine that in your brain, in that special part of your brain called the reward circuit, there's like a teeter-totter, you know, in a kid's playground, a beam on a central fulcrum. And when that when that teeter-totter, that balance is at rest, it's level with the ground. When we do something pleasurable, it tilts one way. And when we do something painful or have an ex- experience of pain, it, it tilts the opposite way. One of the overarching rules governing this balance, which we have now discovered through very interesting neuroscientific methods, whether in animals or humans, is that that balance wants to stay level. And with any deviation from neutrality, our brains are going to work very hard to restore a level balance or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So let's take, for example, if I eat a piece of chocolate, I really like chocolate, my balance tips to the side of pleasure. I get a little release of dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter in my reward circuit in the brain and yay, I feel good. But no sooner has that happened than I get these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of my balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance. So they don't hop off as soon as I've achieved homeostasis, they stay on until I've tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate or the come down or the after effect or the hangover. Now, if I can, wait I, can long, I ask about yeah. this real quick? Yeah. This is super yeah. interesting because just yesterday I was listening. I'm a big fan of, of your colleague, Andrew Huberman and his yeah. podcast. Just yesterday I was listening to the episode on sugar yes. and sugar cravings. And I'm going to forget the exact details of this, you know, the, the mechanism behind this. I'm just a psychologist, but essentially I think he described something similar where when you have that, whatever the sugar is, right? Sucrose, fructose, that you get, I think, kind of an immediate satisfaction, but that satisfaction really only lasts, he said, I think somewhere around 15 minutes or so. Is that a similar sort of mechanism that you're describing here? Like we got our satisfaction, now it's tipping back the other way and kind of saying, hey, you want more of this thing to bring me back into balance? Yes, that, that's exactly okay. it. And, and people can definitely get addicted to sugar. It's a potent releaser of dopamine. And again, the key here is that with sugar or any other rewarding substance or behavior, you get a release of dopamine, but your brain is going to immediately respond to those increased levels of dopamine by downregulating endogenous dopamine production and dopamine receptors, not just to baseline level, but below baseline level before going back to baseline, which is homeostasis. And again, if you imagine that as you've got a pleasure pain balance, you get a release of dopamine, it tips the side of pleasure, the gremlins hop on the pain side and they tip you to the side of pain. That's the come down, the dopamine deficit state, that moment of wanting to get out of that uncomfortable state by reaching for another bit of sugar or whatever it is. Right. But if you wait, right, the gremlins pop off and homeostasis is restored. So the key point here is that the way that the brain restores a level balance is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount 
to whatever the initial stimulus was. It doesn't just go back to baseline mm -hmm. after a deviation. It goes from the deviation to, to the initial pleasurable experience to pain, wanting more of that pleasurable experience to a level balance. And is this proportionate generally? You know, what, whatever, whatever the spike is, you're going to see kind of an equal come down? So that is what the experiments show that okay. typically it's proportional okay. and it's, it can be qualitatively. It's what's interesting is it's, it's like qualitatively potentially not exactly the opposite of whatever the initial stimulus is, but it's mm -hmm. broadly speaking, a kind of reinforcing or positive experience followed by a negative or aversive experience. Okay. Okay. And, and how does the, well, can I just ask, how does the baseline over time um, shift with those spikes and downward, well, inverses, invert, inversions of the spikes? So will the baseline generally with more and more dopamine stimulation over time go down? Now, I'm, I'm thinking of baseline here as general state of mind, general mood, or is there a way in which it goes up or does it generally, does homeostasis kind of always restore it to roughly the same baseline? Right. So now you're getting to the key of what right. happens in the brain as people become mm -hmm. addicted, that essentially once those gremlins have been formed in response to uh, you know, a, a rewarding stimulus, they might hop off the balance, but they never entirely go away. And mm -hmm. they like it on the balance. So they're waiting in the wings to hop on again. So that means with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing stimulus, those gremlins start to multiply. And over time, you start to get more and more gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance, which means that with repeated exposure, that initial deviation to the side of pleasure gets weaker and shorter in duration. And that after response to pain gets stronger and longer right. in duration. So eventually you end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole room. They're camped out there. They're not going anywhere. And that's when we've changed our hedonic or joy set point. Mm. So when people, when people become addicted, what's essentially happened is they're walking around with a pleasure pain balance tilted to the side of pain, mm. right? So that means when they need, that means, first of all, they need more and more to get the same effect, right? Not to feel good, but just to feel normal and level the balance. And when they're not using, they're walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain, experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. So to push the, the Sisyphus analogy a bit further on this and just map that out as a useful yeah. way, it's, it's, it's as if kind of Sisyphus has to push the boulder higher each time to get the same stimulation that he felt before, but also has to watch it go even further down the hill and then go and pick it up for, you know, and his kind of baseline mood in doing this goes even further down. So he needs that further stimulation to go up. Is, is that one way of stretching this? Yeah, <laughs> I, that, works. That, that works. That works. <laughs> well, and I think the mechanism just, and you referenced this earlier, right? But we, 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 you said it quickly. We glossed over it a little bit. I want to just kind of reiterate the exact quote from the book because I think we really want to hammer home this point. So I'll read it word for word. You write, yeah. the paradox is that hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake, actually can lead to anhedonia, the ability to enjoy pleasure of any kind. That's right. Okay. That's right. So this is, this is the primary pathway to addiction. Right. Or is it is an outcome of addiction? Are we talking chicken and egg here a little bit or is there a causal direction? I think it gets to be a, a cycle of what we okay. call neg negative reinforcement. Right. Where we generally think in popular culture that people who become addicted are hedonists and they're just relentlessly pursuing pleasure. But what very quickly happens in the brain as these neuroadaptation gremlins accumulate on the pain side of the balance and put them in a dopamine deficit state is that they are compulsively driven to seek out their drug, not to feel good, but to stop feeling bad and level right. that balance. Yeah. So it's, it's in that moment, right on the come down when we're kind of feeling bad, as I understand it, that a lot of us, and I'm guilty of this. I think most humans are guilty of this on some level 
in that come down during that moment is usually where we actually kind of respond by trying to go for more pleasure. And what we act, you know, tip that teeter totter back over to the other direction. As I understand it, what we really need to be doing is sort of endure that come down, right? And sort of resensitize or desensitize ourselves a little bit. We talk a little bit about in that moment, what might be some good things for us to practice? Yeah, I mean, I think so just the awareness of what's going on in our brains at that moment when, for example, we finish a really good Netflix episode and then the little next episode button comes up and it's like, all we can do not to press that next episode button is that we're is it that we really want to watch another episode or is it that we're experiencing dopamine we're experiencing dopamine freefall we've got gremlins you know on the pain side of our balance and we're just trying to kind of restore a baseline homeostasis so i think that's a really important frame or awareness i had a reader who emailed me and said you know, the, the balance and gremlins analogy really has helped me quit smoking because every time I have a craving for cigarettes, I just imagine the gremlins wildly hopping up and down on the pain side of my balance. And I'm like, those nasty gremlins, I'm going to beat them and I'm going to wait long enough, you know, for them to hop off and for that, that craving yeah. to pass. Yeah. And so I think that that's kind of that framework, you know, I think can be, um, you know, really, really helpful. And then more importantly, taking it one step further, you know, in addition to thinking about what we can do when we're in the dopamine deficit state is to acknowledge that the continual consumption of these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors creates the dopamine deficit state in the first place, such that we might actually want to avoid these pleasures because of the enormously high price that we have to pay for them. Just because it feels good doesn't mean it is good. Well, it's not just that it does not doesn't mean it is good. It's that just because it feels good in the moment doesn't mean it's going to feel good down the road. And that the cumulative effect on your set, your feeling is that you will feel in fact bad. Uh, Right. So it's, it's not, it's not something like delayed gratification. It's more than that. It's long-term thinking of this, um, this enjoyment now, uh, isn't at the cost of greater enjoyment later. It's that this enjoyment now may in fact lead to me feeling worse later. This is really the key, John. This is really the key that I want to communicate to people. It's not just that, oh, you know, I'm kind of depleting my dopamine source such that this thing isn't going to be as fun next time around. It's that, wow, doing this thing puts me in a dopamine deficit state such that I will actually be anxious, depressed, not able to sleep, um, and all kinds of other dysphoric types of experiences. I see so many people coming into my practice now who are seeking help for depression, anxiety, thoughts of wanting to die, not being able to sleep, not being able to concentrate. 20 years ago, the first thing I would have done for most of these individuals was prescribe them an antidepressant. Today, the first thing I do is I say, what are you consuming? How much? How often? Such that what can we assume you've done to your baseline dopamine firing? Such that the first thing that we need to do to intervene is actually have you stop using your drug of choice for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off so that you can restore baseline homeostasis. And after, you know, almost 10 plus years of doing this as a first line intervention, I am really convinced that the leading cause of unhappiness in the modern world today is that we have way too much dopamine and that to compensate for this fire hose of dopamine, our brains have had to physiologically readjust and put us in a dopamine deficit state akin to a depression in order to try wildly to restore homeostasis. Wow. Now there's some, some um, stark warnings, I think, for listeners here. Let's, yeah. well, let's go further. I mean, I, Nick, I, I know you'd like to explore something here further. Right? For context here, John and I do um, some coaching together for an organization called the Flow Research Collective, right? So we try to help people understand how to shift into states of hyperfocus 
the flow state even, right, as kind of an extreme of that. And so you can't you can't have those conversations without talk of, talking about dopamine specifically, right, along with a host of other neurochemicals. One of the things that's come up, I think, is this idea of dopamine fasting or dopamine detoxing. Now, you write about it in the book, I think, from the standpoint of addiction. And I want to hear about that. I'd love for you to tell our listeners about that relationship. But that might also lead us into conversations about distraction more generally, right? And I, I definitely want to make sure we get into some of the how-to pieces, like what yeah. happens when we talk about dopamine fasting or detoxing or the correct vernacular and, and what's happening on a mechanistic level. So can we, can, and, and I don't expect to throw all those questions out to you at once. We'll stack them a little bit, but can we start here? What do we mean by dopamine fasting or dopamine detoxing? And why is that a useful exercise for the average person to engage in? Great. So let me, let me answer this by, by telling you what I've learned from patients over the years. So my practice 20 years ago was focused on helping people primarily with drug and alcohol addiction. And, and, and in that context, you know, there's people don't really question that they should stop their drugs and the alcohol that they're addicted to. It's sort of a given, right? That, gee, you know, this has taken over my life and I need to stop. And what I learned again and again, which was just so fascinating to observe experientially, was that when people were able to get into sustained recovery, um, which is to say, abstain from yeah. their drug of choice, they experienced flourishing, right? They experienced a palpable improvement in their mood, in their levels of anxiety, in their sleep, in their ability to concentrate, in their ability to be present, in their cognitive abilities, in their ability to live according to their, their goals and values. And so it became very obvious to me that this would be the most important intervention and that would take patients a lot further than what I could do with psychotherapy or mm -hmm. antidepressants or anxiolytics, mm -hmm. that just by changing their brain chemistry, which is to say abstaining for long enough for the neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for dopamine homeostasis to be restored, these patients were, were in many ways reborn. Right. It didn't mean that, that their life was easy. You know, addiction is sure. a chronic relapsing and remitting disorder, um, you know, craving, you know, all of that. It's difficult. And of course, and you have to live with the emotions that you are distracting yourself. I mean, it's very complicated, but the fit, the power of that physiology is just so incredibly overwhelming that it then became a place where I then began with patients who were not coming in for addiction, but who were coming in for other things, depression, anxiety, oh, feelings of alienation, yeah. feelings of disconnection, chronic body pain, right? And it's not to, to be like overly reductionistic, but when you're dealing with a physiology that, that's that powerful and that involves not giving your patient a drug, but actually having them remove drugs such mm -hmm. that their own brains and physiology can upregulate the hormones and neurotransmitters that are yeah. good for them and seeing that work again and again and again. I mean, I just became powerfully convinced sure. of, of that, that intervention. And so when you ask, you know, is it helpful for the average person who's not addicted, you know, doesn't meet DSM criteria. I mean, I, yes. I mean, this yeah. is, I, I really, and it, I, I, I became convinced that actually, again, the problem with our lives is not that they're too hard our lives are too easy. We're not wired for this easy life. We are wired for striving, for friction, to walk tens of kilometers a day, to get a drink of water and a handful of berries. Our brains are not evolved for the world that we live in now. And, and the consumption of all of these ready-made kind of distractors and, and pleasers and comforters is, is making us sick. And I really believe that. I mean, this is bringing us on to what you say about abstinence and a kind of a, a kind of asceticism. Um, and, and what you said there, you, you use the word kind of flourishing as a way that you described some people had see, you'd seen people kind of 
in a different way after they'd had therapy um, in response to their dopamine addiction. You said, you know, they they did seem to be flourishing more because they'd been freed to a degree, at least, of the, these addictions. Um, moving from dopamine fasting as a kind of a, a temporary measure that someone might try out to get over there or remove themselves from their addiction to a kind of more permanent way of living and hence to, to flourish more broadly. I was quite taken by your argument, Dopamine Nation, that we need to embrace abstinence, as you just said there, and a kind of asceticism as a new way of life. And, you know, to bring in some of the technical terms you speak about, because, you know, thanks to neuroplasticity, homeostasis will be restored after enough of a break from dopamine such that it becomes your kind of your way of life, your way of being. So could you describe, describe the kind of form of abstinence and asceticism you have in mind as a full way of life rather than just a kind of a, a dopamine fast? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, first of all, it, it takes a major cultural reframe because we have this notion in modern life that pain is bad and that we should avoid pain at all costs. And that if we're experiencing pain, something's wrong with our brains or something's wrong with our, our spouse or something's wrong with our job. And um, what I'm asking people to do is to really befriend pain, you know, and this is not like a brand new idea, but I, what I'm trying to say is that there's extra urgency around it because in ways large and small, we, we are insulated from pain and we're inundating ourselves with pleasure. And so the idea is to abstain from that thing that you reach for when you're in distress, to tolerate, you know, the discomfort, in, in fact, to turn toward it and mm -hmm. immerse yourself in it and embrace it and tolerate it and, and be curious about it. And then potentially to go even one step further and to intentionally do things that are physically and emotionally painful. And why is that? Because those neuroadaptation gremlins are agnostic to which side of the balance gets tilted first. If we do something pleasurable, they're very happy to hop on the pain side. But if we do something painful, they're happy to hop on the pleasure side. And ultimately by doing things that are hard, what we do is we tell our bodies, oh, there's an injury here. It's time to start to make more of our own dopamine, right? Yeah. And we see that in lots and lots of science. This is the science of hormesis. Hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. Mm -hmm. And essentially it's all about how by using mild to moderate noxious stimuli on purpose, we can increase our resilience. And the way that we do that is by upregulating dopamine. So for example, if you look at studies in humans who immerse themselves in ice cold water baths, what you see is a gradual increase over the course of that ice cold water immersion in dopamine levels, yep. which, are then, which are then sustained for hours afterwards right. before coming back down to baseline. Same thing with exercise, right? And, and so essentially, if you compare and contrast that with an intoxicant, what you get with an intoxicant, you get a sudden spike in dopamine, then you get dopamine free fall below baseline levels. That's that withdrawal, the dysphoria, the anxiety, the dopamine deficit state. And then you go back to baseline. But with painful stimuli, you never have to do that because you're paying for your dopamine up front, right? You're doing the hard thing first. You're intentionally inviting that into your lives. And then you get a very nice reward. And the reason that's important is because we are creatures of desire. Mm -hmm. We cannot expect ourselves to just never, you know, reach for dopamine. That's not, we're strivers. We want to reach for dopamine, but how can we do it in ways that are healthy and adaptive? And I think the ways that we can do it that are healthy and adaptive are by doing things that are hard and creating that friction that then allows us to get that dopamine rush indirectly which yeah. will make it less vulnerable to the problem of uh, tolerance, dependence, withdrawal, addiction. Not totally invulnerable, sure. but less, less sure. vulnerable. So I'd, I'd love to go that route for a second and just stick on the how-to. So the cold exposure is a great example, really wonderful science around that. Um, we mentioned your, your colleague, Andrew Huberman, right, just released another episode on it, I think, this week. Um, have you had a chance to read Paul Bloom's new book, uh, I've, I've read about it. I, I've read about it. I've heard it's great, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's great. And, and John mentioned we chatted with Todd Cashton. Um, you know, when I think about the psychology of, uh, well, 
I think what you're describing. So I was curious if you had read it because I'm I'm wondering if you just described the mechanism that we see as sort of, you know, from psychological experience, which is basically chosen suffering, if you will, key point here, chosen, right? Yes. In many cases can be, and this goes back to Sisyphus, can be a very meaningful experience. Right. And through that can be a, I, I guess, in effect, a pleasurable experience, right? Or a positive experience, if you will. Yeah. And I love how you brought Sisyphus in because when I think of Sisyphus, I'm really trying to reframe a myth that that is supposed to exemplify futility into something that we could actually reframe as very positive, Mm -hmm. right? Sisyphus chooses every day. I mean, yeah, granted he's in Hades, so maybe he doesn't choose it, but we're kind of living in Hades now, (laughs) you know? So he just says, okay, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make the best of pushing this boulder up and, and I'm, you know, it's, I'm going to make it work for me. And so that's exactly what we need to do. Um, You know, every day we wake up. So will you tell us more how, like cold exposure, great. What else might be on the list? You know, simple, tangible that people could do, you know, almost any space, any time. So I've gotten lots of um, emails from readers who talk about martial arts, all different forms of Mm -hmm. martial arts that also reframe pain and really embrace pain and think of pain mm. as something um, positive. It doesn't just have to be a physical type of painful stimulus. It can also be something that's emotionally difficult or challenging or cognitively difficult or challenging. I'm sure you all talk about that all the time in your flow work, right? Yes. Where you do this kind of you know mental immersion into this space that's importantly, very immersive, free of distractions, but also effortful. Like there Mm -hmm. are moments, I mean, it's so funny. We talk about alerts and all these things that interrupt us now, but what I experience personally is my mind is always wanting to interrupt itself, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll be doing something and I'll be like, well, I could really check my email now. I could do that. I could do that, but that will really distract me. So sitting with that feeling and then allowing myself to not do that and then to continue to move forward with the task, the immersive task. Yeah. That's very effortful. Like it's, that's, it's difficult. It's because yeah, like you said, right. In, in this, I'm so glad you're making, you're bringing us to this bridge because so first of all, part of what we teach for with flow research collective, our executive director, Stephen Kotler uses this language. First step to get into flow is struggle. Yeah, right? you, you have to engage in something. He has this great line. Right. Flow happens when you say yes to the fight. I love right. that line, right? Yeah, you got to rise to the occasion. You got to push the boulder, right? All the things involved with that. But in the meantime, right, when you're in that struggle and it's unpleasant, if you can't endure that, if you can't navigate that, right, what's going to get creep in and pull you away? Distraction and saying, this is easier, this is more pleasant, this is more fun, come engage with me. And so this this is why I think your work is so important. Addiction and distraction and focus and these other things that can, that can, John talks about all the time, right? Attention being one of our most precious resources. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to really emphasize here is that I see a lot of people who are convinced that this experience of distraction is unique to them and that it's a form of psychopathology and that their brains uniquely do this to them. And what I try to say is, um, no, you know, like that's the human experience. I deal with that too. You know, we're all, and I'll never forget. I had a patient came and she said, I think I have ADHD. I said, well, tell me, tell me why you think that she said, well, Whenever I have to do something hard, like, you know, I find it a real struggle. I said, well, can you give me something else? She was like, for example, when I'm washing the dishes, I find I really don't want to wash the dishes. And I thought to myself, mm-hmm. And when I'm folding the laundry, I really don't want to fold the laundry. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you know, by the end, by the end of her list, I was like, I guess we all have ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and, and again, it's not to, it's not to suggest that this frontal lobe phenomenon that we have come to call ADHD doesn't exist. I'm not saying that. There's no doubt that people have differing capacities and their ability to focus and sustain that focus. But what's happened today is that people think that like their little brain thing is like some unique bizarro phenomenon. For example, I remember when I saw Elon Musk on Joe Rogan 
And Elon said, you know, I constantly have thoughts all the time. They're going on and on. I can't stop them. And you could tell by the way he said it, that he thought that his brain was, yeah. and I just felt like, like, can I, where's the speed dial to Elon? It's like, Elon, <laughs> that's the human condition, yeah. you know, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're richer than the rest of us, but I don't think your brain is all that different. I'm sorry. I'm so glad, Anna, that you you spoke about emotional and cognitive pain or endurance as something really key as a practical step, because when you were outlining this in, in, in response to the question I asked about the kind of the life of abstinence you recommend and asceticism um, and kind of endurance, I, I couldn't help but primarily think of physical endurance. And that seems to be one where people are doing doing a lot of these things you recommended where, you know, there, there are, you know, there's a huge um, fitness industry, physical fitness industry right now. And very, a lot of things are in fashion, which, you know, people find difficult to do like cold water swimming, ice baths, taking cold showers. The physical side of things seems to be one, seems to be one where people are, are, are taking the kind of advice you're offering in this book and martial arts and so on. But it's more the emotional and cognitive that's more difficult. It's interesting. Yeah. You, you said that kind of effortful um, cognitive effort is something maybe we don't like to do, but it has benefits. I mean, you know, research in the science of learning shows that when when learning is effortful, we get longer term gains. It, yeah. You know, yeah. learning gets embedded in our long term memories more. But I mean, if can we just go a bit further on this? So, I'm what what kind of advice do you have for kind of emotional endurance then because mm. i think that's going to get us more to the core of one of the problems with flourishing and happiness and the obsession that people have nowadays with happiness or pleasure-based happiness specifically it's you know the the ask is for a kind of patient acceptance um you know which is is, is very counterculture right because <laughs> We also want to have agency and be in control and, and be like acting on these feelings one way or another. And I mean, I have that too. And, you know, that's why I do my daily, you know, exercise, right? Because I'm going to cash in on my dopamine that's going to help me maintain some kind of equilibrium through the rest of my day. Mm -hmm. What's much, much harder for me, um, and again, I always like to come back to concrete examples um, but what's frankly much, much harder for me is just to go to bed every night. Um, and to, yeah. I actually have quite a bit this of anxiety. Yeah. yeah. I have a lot of anxiety right around my bedtime mm. because I both want to be asleep and I know that the transition into sleep will be painful for me. Why is it painful? Well, in part, because that's when I used to use my drug of choice. Um, you know, which is romance novels and something else, which you can guess in order to put myself to sleep. And now I don't do that anymore. So essentially I am practicing abstinence, which is a wonderful opportunity to practice tolerating psychological distress. Um, because it's really, it's not the action of doing something. It's actually the action of not doing something. It's restraint. And so I have to lie in bed. And I mean, it, it's pretty much every freaking night. Um, I lie there and I, you know, feel anxiety as I wait for sleep to come. And I just have to patiently endure that and trust that I will pass into sleep, which I eventually do. Um, but I could also very easily reach for my drug of choice again, yeah, or right. take a sleeping pill, which would work yeah. great initially, but would, would eventually stop working because of the process of neuroadaptation. And then I'd have a new problem because then I'd be physiologically dependent on Ambien or Xanax or Ativan. Right. Plus yeah. it, it wouldn't work anymore. So then I would need more. So, you know, it, it's, so it's that just kind of tolerating it and also importantly, normalizing it. Like, so I hope that by my sharing my really, kind of, you know, slightly embarrassing journey into sleep. Hopefully that resonates with other people who have a similarly embarrassing peak anxiety before bed. And just like, we're, you're not alone, folks. Like this is, this is our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. very human. That's what I mentioned earlier, right? It's very human story. Yeah. So.
Yeah. Plus, I'm having hot flashes, and that's really uncomfortable. <laughs> that I mean, there's, there's a yeah. lot more going on. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, hard to hard to patiently uh, endure that, right? Or patiently accept that sometimes. Yeah. It seems from some of the points you're taking here, it seems to me that one problem that perhaps your research points to is a a modern obsession with productivity. You mentioned earlier how yeah, you could be talking to someone, and then in your head pops, "Hey, I should check my emails now." And when you, when you said that, I was like, yeah, this happens to me all the time. I'm like, why? Why would I do that? Yeah. <laughs> Part of me wants to think I get a dopamine reward from it, but also, and this, you know, it could be this as well, or perhaps this is what I get the dopamine reward from is an obsession with, I should be productive all the time, right? And, and there is an yeah. obsession with productivity um, widespread nowadays, right? Um, yes. But this this connects with a question I want to ask, which is um, that, you know, it's sometimes research suggests that we get dopamine rewards from accomplishing things such as, you yeah. know, ticking things off a to-do list, right? And that seems like a healthy dopamine reward. You know, it's often recommended, you know, make a to-do list, tick the things off, makes you feel good, make your bed first thing in the morning, start the day in a good way, makes you feel good. Um, and the question I originally wanted to ask was, you know, are there kind of healthy dopamine rewards like this? And does this absence you're recommending and, and dopamine fasting involve abstaining from practices that release dopamine that are clearly good for our lives, such as ticking items off your to-do list. But now, and the way this has taken a different form now is, I'm wondering if that kind of obsession with productivity is rooted in the same kind of thing. You get this dopamine fix from it. So my question there is, um, is there a connection, do you think, in your research between dopamine addiction and productivity? is one of the reasons perhaps we're obsessed with productivity or maybe the reason that we're getting these dopamine rewards from it. And so does the life of abstinence involve also in itself a kind of, and the life you're recommending, um, a movement away from this obsession with productivity? Yes. Okay. So this is, this is really good because basically, you know, the messaging in dopamine nation is, Hey, we're pressing way too hard and too often on the pleasure side. You know, we're resetting our balance to the side of the pain. We're unhappy because of it. One of the things you can do to try to restore homeostasis better, faster, and also get your dopamine fix is press on the pain side, which includes to-do lists and all of the, those, you know, effortful things that we do for work or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, it is, which are true and real and a source of dopamine and make us feel good and are reinforcing. And we also probably tied to making money or getting social, you know, um, affirmation and all of that stuff. And th that's what I argue for in, in dopamine nation. And, and I believe that to be true, but, but obviously we can and do take all of that too far. Mm -hmm. um, and our world is created for us to take it too far. So, you know, we have drugified work, right? We have made it more potent. Uh, we have made it uh, like a 24 seven thing, right? There's no, there's no end point to it. There's, it yep. never ends. There's no stopping point. We've made it more potent. I don't know about you, but I get charts every week that tell me whether or not I've met my you know, billing quota here, seeing patients. And when I'm below, I'm unhappy. When I go above my billing quota, it's like, yeah, you know, a little hit of dopamine. So mm. even in the world of effortful engagement, whether it's physical or mental, whether it's work, you know, we, we've, we've, you know, we've created, we've turned that into something that is ripe for addiction as well. So then where, where does that leave us? You know, what, what are the healthy sources of dopamine? And, you know, I, I think what it means is that whether you're pressing on the pleasure side or the pain side, you have to be very mindful of turning that into a drug. How does it turn into a drug? It's too much or it's too often. The deviation one way or another is too strong. And that whether your drug is a pleasure or something that's an effortful, painful thing like work, um, you know, you need to take a step back from it, right? And you need to lay off of it and you need to allow yourself to tolerate the withdrawal from it mm -hmm. and to restore kind of that, that balance that I think we all know when we're there and we feel it. Now, COVID was a really interesting sort of social experiment on a grand scale 
because for many people, you know, it was, it was a huge step back from work and productivity that was imposed by the environment, which was for so many, although, you know, obviously a hard time for, for many people, but for, for what, what's, you know, not as, as freely discussed was what an incredible relief it was for, for so many, right? That the sort of the rat race of productivity stopped for a while and you didn't have to feel the same fear of missing out because everybody had to slow down. And so this slower life that we all led then, you know, I think a lot of us uh, felt a relief, you know, and, and like kind of a, Mm-hmm. An ability mm-hmm. to just catch our breaths and feel more centered and to connect with mm-hmm. things that are sort of restorative without getting us into the chasing dopamine, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, compulsion that is exactly what we need to avoid. I, I would also say that this phenomenon of like you're talking to somebody and then you think about checking your email, yeah. um, which happens to me, all, you know all the time. Yeah. So that that's playing out on a couple of different levels. On on one level, it's yes, the dopamine hit of something in the email that might be either really good or really bad because dopamine responds sure. to aversive stimuli too, like a fire that we need to put out or just, you know, wanting to get to the zero inbox, right? Like the Sisyphus goal of the zero the zero <laughs> I'm going to keep going zero <laughs> inbox, right? Um, which is elusive, right? We never get to the zero inbox. Yeah. So, um, so, so that that's playing that that's playing out, and and is related to me. But on another really interesting level, it's also like a defense against investing in the relationship with the person that we're talking to. It's easier to slide out than to say, okay, how can I make this conversation like actually meaningful and interesting Mm. so this is where we get into the thing where it's not Mm. it's both the avoidance distractions you know that that result from thinking of our drug of choice but it's also avoidance more generally yeah like our fear of truly engaging deeply in the moment there's we have a great deal of fear around that and 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 what we might be risking in doing that Right. Closely connected, and you kind of referenced it earlier, but to procrastination, I think, which as right. I understand it on a on a sort of neurobiological level is basically like the presence of unpleasantness, right? And mm-hmm. the avoidance of it on a conscious or, or maybe even subconscious level, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think procrastination, there's a lot of, uh, what I see in my patients is there's also a lot of um, perfectionism that comes into play yeah. with procrastination mm-hmm. and that, that yep. fear of if I can't do it perfectly, you know, I'm not going to do it at all, or I, yeah. I, I can't, I can't even begin. And so for, for that, I think it has to be kind of an embracing doing it imperfectly or doing it even mm-hmm. badly and being okay mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we want to respect your time, Anna. We've already been talking for a very long time. Um, and we know you're extremely busy. So. And you've nailed it. So much good yeah. stuff already. Oh, this is I, really thank great. Thank you. Yeah. I, yeah, it's been, it's been very immersive talking to both of you. Would you mind if we asked you our final question today? Yes, please. Okay, so we have this uh, signature question we like to ask all of our guests. We call it the flourishing question. It's very simple. It's practical. What's the one lesson on flourishing that you'd like our listeners to walk away with? And what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? All right. Well, the one lesson I will leave you with is if you find yourself in a moment of feeling anxious, or low, or unhappy, and you, of course, instinctually want to reach for something to relieve that feeling, what I suggest you try as an experiment is to do something opposite of that and do something really hard in that moment that you really don't want to do, Mm. to see whether or not by embracing something that's either physically or mentally very challenging for you, you can, through the theory of emotional relativity, find yourself feeling better afterward. Love it. Love wow. It. It's really that. excellent. That's great. Yes. That's great. So that's, uh, Einstein's, that's Einstein's theory, by the way. Einstein's theory of emotional noted. relativity. <laughs> noted. Appropriately cited. So 
Uh, Anna, this, this was a real pleasure. Um, Dr. Anna Lemke, your most recent book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in an Age of Indulgence. Uh, this has been a real treat. I'm a huge fan of yours. I know John is too. We're really looking forward to this. Thank you for the time. This was really wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. It was a, a real joy for me. Good. Thanks so much. So uh, where can people find you, interact with you, social media, Stanford website? How can people get in touch? So I'm not on social media. Um, Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to handle it, I think. Abstinence. Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Um, But, you know, folks can find out more about my work um, at AnnaLemke.com. Okay, great. Excellent. Anna, thank you so much. Really appreciate it and uh, look forward to hopefully keeping in touch. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to um, hear, you know, how this whole venture goes for all of you and also, um, you know, hear more about your work going forward. Thank you for your thoughtfulness. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yep. Have a great week. Take care. You too. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that, so your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.